It feels like the crisis with Russia was both predictable and avoidable. And it feels like this was another effort by Mohammed bin Salman to demonstrate that he won't be intimidated. But to do reckless things in order to demonstrate you won't be intimidated is reckless. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. The failure of the OPEC Plus alliance to reach an agreement and the resulting oil price collapse are having widespread global impacts. To help us understand this rapidly evolving news, we invited two CSIS experts, John Alterman from the Middle East Program and Frank Verastro from here in the Energy Program, to help give us some context around this energy, political, and economic development happening in the Middle East, and to help give us a sense of where we might be heading in the coming weeks and months. Let's turn it over to Frank now. So this past week's international economic and geopolitical news has had no shortage of headline issues. The continued spread of the coronavirus and the expanding economic fallout was exacerbated last week when the OPEC alliance not only failed to prop up prices in the face of declining demand and economic growth, but it quickly devolved into a belligerent game of chicken between its largest members that further roiled global markets. Then over the weekend, the news emerged that Saudi Arabia had detained several royals, including the brother of King Salman and the former crown prince, allegedly in connection with an attempted coup. In a country long known for seeking consensus and stability, these two actions seemed instead to be driven by the ambition of the young crown prince, with the likely outcome only further curbing foreign companies' appetites for investing in the country. And that would undermine one of the key tenants uh, to Vision 2030. So today we're going to have uh, John Alterman talk about the geopolitical implications of what goes on, and I'll be happy to answer questions on the oil side. So, John, welcome. Thanks, Frank. It's good to be with you. You talked about oil prices getting pushed down by this price war. Is it possible that over the next few weeks, the Russians and the Saudis are able to, to put Humpty Bumpty back together again, that they'll decide that, that the, the war is over and it's time to declare a truce? So I think from an economic standpoint, um, the problem when OPEC met was too much supply and not enough demand. And by the group not agreeing, and we can talk about the miscalculations and the signals that were sent, but going the other way, we're adding supply and demand is getting worse. So the end result has been to exacerbate an already bad situation. I think it's everyone's hope that um, the current agreement stays in effect until the end of March. It's gonna be difficult for these egos to walk back the positions that they've taken, increasingly strident positions. But the hope is that in the next quarter, for sure, that we can start getting get back to normalcy because this idea of flooding the market with more oil is not going to help anyone. So would it be your expectation they'll be able to do it or is it your hope they'll be able to do it? Right now, it's my hope. Um, there was a joint technical committee meeting of OPEC scheduled for March 18th. Um, different people will tell you that's on or it's off. There are still people trying to broker an agreement uh, and slow this down. I think there was miscalculations on both sides going into the meeting. So the Russians clearly did not want a long-term extension and then further cuts. And they made that abundantly clear before last week's meeting. 
What the Saudis did instead was on the Thursday, OPEC met and decided on another cut of an additional million and a half barrels a day with the subsequent meeting on Friday of the OPEC alliance. So that would include Russia and the 10 non-OPEC countries. It's OPEC plus. OPEC plus or what we call the OPEC alliance, right, um, where they were going to try to force that um, agreement on the alliance. And the Russians clearly were not willing to accept that. Uh, Novak had his marching orders from Putin uh, and said as much that he'd be willing to extend the current agreement for another three months and just assess the market, see what the coronavirus really did to demand and how quickly China was going to come out of this. And the Saudis wouldn't budge. In fact, the, the storyline seems to indicate that uh, Abdulaziz, uh, Prince Abdulaziz, who's the Saudi oil minister, left the meeting on Friday morning to phone Riyadh and was given explicit instructions that the cut had to occur and that Russia had to participate. And Novak walked out. But then it's to me, it's the subsequent. So there was no press conference following the meeting, but the subsequent activity just added to the, the complexity of the situation and the inability to walk back or the difficulty in walking back. So in the next two days, Saudi Arabia announced it was actually increasing its productive capacity, which will cost them another $30 billion to add a million barrels a day capacity, and that they were immediately increasing, starting April 1, production up to 12.3 million barrels a day. They were discounting prices to Europe, Asia, and the United States, and they were going to flood the market to drive prices down. Russia, on the alternative side, said, well, they can immediately increase production by two or 300,000 barrels a day, and they have oil and starch. You know, they can match you barrel for barrel, which they can't, but they may be more um, resilient in terms of uh, pricing. So Saudi Arabia certainly needs a certain amount of, of revenue to keep the economy going. Um, the value in terms of reals for the IPO offer for Aramco has dropped from like 32 to 26. Um, it has undermined the inability of the country to raise more capital. The longer this goes on, the worse it gets. There's no question that they both have uh, foreign reserves and can sustain lower for a little bit longer, but the pain is just gonna be outrageously difficult. And then for other members, whether it's Iran or Iraq or Nigeria, Venezuela, um, Libya, they can't do what the Saudis are doing. So there's going to be an increased push to get this resolved. The question is, how do you walk back when the leaders of the two countries now have taken such strident positions? But you think that the prices might be able to, to bounce back uh, soon if, if they can work out a way to do that? Or is that not, or is that not the way it's going to play out? So there's two things, right? On the, there's um, three things we look at in fundamentals, uh, supply, demand, and then you look at storage. The way the situation is set up now, the problem was demand. Because of the coronavirus, um, mild winter in Europe, oil prices were lagging anyway. That's why OPEC met initially to talk about a further reduction in supply which was probably warranted. Uh, you can argue uh, how much, how fast, but an additional supply needed to come off the market. The Russians were concerned that every time that OPEC takes supply off the market and bolsters prices, 
someone else comes in with additional supply, most notably the United States, and gets the benefit without any pain. They capture their market share. What they've done now is make demand hasn't gotten any better as a result of this. This notion that by dropping prices, you're going to see an increased demand. There's nothing you want to buy. You don't need any more fuel for airlines because we're not flying places. Uh, trucks and cargo ships are not delivering products because of the coronavirus. And if the world goes into a recession, there's not going to be a lot more demand for oil. So they haven't done anything on the demand side, and they've worsened the situation on the supply side. U.S. producers uh, are probably already committed to production into the second quarter. This will strain them. $30 in the United States is really difficult. $40 they can live with, $30 not so much. But I'm not sure that either Saudi Arabia or Russia can live with this either for an extended period of time. So my expectation and hope is that cooler heads would prevail and they will find a way to walk out of this, but I doubt that it will be before middle of April. And I've seen a, a series of articles speculating that the shocks on the U.S. financial community from lower oil prices are going to have a whole series of knock-on effects in the United States as well. Well, that's absolutely true, and you're already seeing it in the banks in Oklahoma and Texas, right? So banks that gave loans to company whose value has now declined, those loans are at risk. And as we, the United States start discussing um, bailout options, uh, giving companies more money to keep payrolls going, presumably to keep their production going, that only adds to the surplus that no one needs. The good thing that we did was we are not releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which was kind of a no-brainer. But there are independent producers that want the U.S. to buy their oil and put it in the reserve. And the administration is also talking about, hmm, maybe it might not be a bad idea to levy a tariff on Saudi oil coming into the United States. So some of the knee-jerk reactions to this are going to make situations worse, not better. Hmm. Interesting. Let me ask you on the political side. So the fact that we not only had... Mohammed bin Salman take this and what looks to be a personal decision that he took at the very highest ranks to put the kibosh on the OPEC alliance by trying to force Russia's hand at the same time or within 72 hours, um, we had the mini roundup back in Riyadh again with royals. What's the motivation and why the timing on this? Uh, well, some of the press articles have said that this, this isn't a coincidence. And they've suggested that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman knew he was taking a bold step, knew that it could have negative consequences and wanted to preempt the possibility that there'd be internal opposition. So he called in uh, two of the most senior royals who might be potential alternatives to his rule and put them under house arrest and, and made clear that he was in charge. If you by that narrative, this is a sign that Mohammed bin Salman, A, saw a crisis coming, and B, the way he prepared for a crisis was to preempt any challenge to the crisis he precipitated. It's not totally clear there wasn't something else going on, something we don't know about. It's not totally clear that this won't turn out in the longer term to be constructive. But as you point out, it feels like the 
crisis with Russia was both predictable and avoidable. And mm -hmm. it feels like this was another effort by Mohammed bin Salman to demonstrate that he won't be intimidated, but to do reckless things in order to demonstrate you won't be intimidated is reckless. And, and I think it, it, depending on how this all plays out, this may feed a narrative in the longer term that will discourage uh, Western investors from partnering with the crown prince and for the kingdom's future rather than bring them back in. So this is part of the miscalculation and, and misrepresentation or misimpression of what was going on. Um, the personal feud that seems to have evolved or that the press is picking up between Saudi Arabia and Russia, part of it goes back to Russia's intransigence. Uh, in December, uh, Abdulaziz was only able to get Russia to agree to extend both the depth and the duration of the OPEC alliance agreement to cut by giving Russia uh, an exclusion on condensates. So they had to cut production by 200,000 barrels a day, but they were exempted on the condensate side, which actually gave them additional 300,000 barrels a day to the plus side. So there was no real cost. And, and Russia has been somewhat of a laggard, uh, both in timing and in volume, um, in terms of fulfilling their commitment to taking oil off the market. There was a phone call placed by Mohammed bin Salman to Putin, and the call was not taken. And there's a, a lot of discussion about whether um, he thought that that was uh, abusing uh, an opportunity to, or missing an opportunity to, to get this resolved. It turns out that now the Russians have come back and say that the time the call was placed, the reason that Putin said he couldn't take the call is because he was in the middle of a six hour meeting with Erdogan. Hmm. So he was that there was, a, in other words, a legitimate reason why he couldn't take the call at that time. It wasn't anything personal. And this, the Saudis just misread it. You know, the, the other element of this is that the Saudis seem to lack an intermediary who can both enjoy the trust of the crown prince and the leadership and also assuage Saudi concerns. Uh, that that. Khalil Fadah, who was rather unceremoniously dismissed uh, as the sort of super minister for economic issues, was both brought into service to prepare for the G20 meetings in November, but now has emerged as somebody to sort of uh, uh, unruffle feathers with the Russians over the oil issue. Does he really enjoy the confidence of the crown prince? Can he really speak for the crown prince? Who can talk the crown prince down becomes a challenge for the Saudis if they're trying to find a, a way out of this that preserves uh, their reputation and, and doesn't look like they overreached. The understanding I have is that he is not involved as an intermediary at this point. There was a Wall Street Journal story suggesting the opposite, that because mm. of his relationship with Novak. I don't know that that's the case yet. Huh. There's got to be a third party, as you suggest, to try to uh, paper over some of the differences here and allow both leaders to walk back. I don't know if it's a new assessment. But I don't know who that third party can be. I agree. I mean, there aren't a lot of candidates. And the United States is probably not, not in the position to serve that role. The United States is not in a position at all to serve that role. Right. And in many ways, it's, it's, it's tensions over the U.S. role.
that had that seemed to have agitated uh, the Russians and, and seemed to be in some ways constraining the Saudis. Uh, but it's hard to imagine that the U.S. could play that role, whether the, the president or anybody else uh, would have both uh, the, the disposition and the ability to try to move this in a constructive direction. And it's a difficult position for Barkindo, the secretary general of OPEC, to play as well, because there was a lot of discussion on bringing Russia in, even though there was an OPEC-Russia uh, extraordinary alliance before this that dates back to oh, before 2010, for God's sakes. Um, a lot of the bringing along of Russia is credited to being done one-on-one between Khaled and Novak. Right. So what does this do for Iraq, Iran, and Libya? It probably has the most severe impact on Iran, which has been struggling mighty, mightily under the reimposition of U.S. sanctions and also has a genuine health crisis on its hands. I'm not sure it has an immediate impact, but in the longer term, it advertises the government's incapacity. It creates a huge financial strain. Uh, you have the COVID-19 destroying travel to Iran for pilgrimage purposes. I think the Iranian economy, which was already in very, very difficult straits, is going to have an enormously hard time pulling out of it. And you will have Iranians saying this is in some significant measure a consequence of government incompetence. So while I don't think that's going to be a problem this week, as the dust settles, as they get over the health crisis, as they begin to consider the economic crisis brought on by plummeting oil demand and plummeting prices, uh, I think Iran is, is going to be in a world of hurt. It could be if, if as you suggest, there's a, a recovery in prices in April, uh, it may be something that largely passes. But my feeling is, given the depth of what the health crisis is likely to cause as a set of problems, <clears throat> demonstrating governmental incapacity. I think the political protests that we saw in the fall are likely to start up when the, the, the health situation improves. Iraq already had a series of political crises. Uh, Iraq had protests that were ongoing since the fall. Iraq has a lot of contact from Iran. I think it doesn't have a well-organized public health sector. Iraq is likely to be, suffer tremendously on the health front, perhaps protect a little bit by having a generally younger population. But I think Iraq will suffer tremendously. And again, there will be all these complaints about governmental incapacity. I suspect that this will fuel more of the political protests uh, that were taking place when the dust settles, although their financial situation is probably not as dire as the Iranians because they don't have to deal with international sanctions. I think places like Libya have larger problems in many ways because the civil war has created such an unsettled situation, because the, the role of proxies in the civil war has created an unsettled situation. The civil war is in self-financing. The civil war is externally financed. It may be that this changes people's willingness to finance the war. It may be you can have things changing in Turkey, which has remarkably one reported case, but certainly more than that. Right. Uh, it may change 
Turkish willingness. It may change Emirati willingness. But I think in many ways, the, Libya is the least affected because its its wars is least tied to domestic conditions. It is least financed by oil. And if anything happens, it would be because it changes the external piece of this war rather than the internal piece. So there's just another piece on the Libyan supply. So Libyan supply is actually down a million barrels a day. And one of the reasons that OPEC numbers overall are at their lowest level in decades, um, certainly over the last decade, they're at 27 million barrels a day um, for February. A lot of that was as a result of Libya as well as the, the cutbacks. If Libya were to come back with production, it presents a bigger problem for OPEC in terms of global supply. And then just to clarify on the price recovery, when we talked about um, supply, demand, and stocks, the longer this oversupply goes on, if people aren't willing to take it. So there's a certain amount of time that you will buy discounted barrels. And if you've got room in storage, you put the oil away. Mm -hmm. There's now a move to look at offshore storage by taking tankers either non-IMO compliant tankers or tankers that are not now in traffic um, moving oil around the world because demand is off and using them as storage, floating storage. One of the ways to prompt a price increase or a price, not shock, but an increase because at such a low level, a shock may not be the appropriate word, but attacking floating storage would be a way to get people's attention on the supply side or the vulnerability. And we've seen that before. Hmm. Um, but the other piece is the storage. And that is people keep producing, but they can't use it as stocks increase. If the economy does improve in the second half of the year, we find that there's a, a curve, uh, certainly hopefully by, by June, where you can actually see that the coronavirus is being managed in a, in a better way, that demand starts coming back in the second half of the year, that all of a sudden you've extended the low price forecast because the oil that's in storage can come out of storage in addition to production. So you're creating a worse situation by oversupplying a market that doesn't need it now in so many ways. And that's my hope that, that why I, I, I get the fact that the current agreement goes through March, there probably won't be any resolution until the end of March. Everything comes off in April unless people go back to the drawing boards with an agreement to do something about it. So that that's my hope about the April time. My, my sense on the economics of this is that we're just seeing the beginnings um, tankers of goods that were already manufactured and loaded in the beginning of February, middle of February, are still on the water in many cases. We're going to see a gap at some point to represent the period when the loadings were stopped or curtailed that, that now there's nothing on the water to deliver products to, right? But we, we're not at that point yet. No one on the, the receiving side has, has felt um, the total impact of this yet. Hmm. Let's talk about U.S.-Saudi relations just for a second. Okay. Where do we go from here if the overtures on the oil side and stability side from the United States, because the United States in production is viewed as complicit, but some of the, the options that are being discussed in the United States are uh, continuing to um, help U.S. producers or put oil in the SPR, you know, if in fact this 
TR-4-232 filing comes into to being um, like an anti-dumping filing. How does that play? There's an economic side, but there's a geopolitical side to the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Has that gotten better or gotten worse over the last six months? Um, in point of fact, the Saudis don't have an alternative to the United States. Uh, they might not like it. They might be looking for alternatives, but for more than 70 years, they have centered their national security on a close relationship with the United States. And I don't think they see themselves as having any other options. The Chinese won't do what we do. Uh, the Russians won't do what we do. I think the Russians and Chinese can't do what we do. Um, they are betting on the Trump administration at the end of the day, standing up for a close relationship with the United States. And as it was explained to me by a senior U.S. official, uh, the view in, in the administration is that you need to have Saudi Vision 2030 succeed because that's the way you're going to defeat Islamic extremism. The Saudis will pivot away from extremism. They will uh, undermine extremism. And in order to have that cycle complete, the Saudis, the Saudis have to be successful in Vision 2030. It may be that Vision 2030 will not be successful, not for reasons of the U.S. relationship, but for reasons that they haven't been missing their targets because of a, a plummeting um, receipts from oil sales. All kinds of things could get in the way. And the reality is, as the Saudis look at the possibility, the increasingly likely possibility of Donald Trump not being president after January, they are looking at a, a real change in the nature of the American relationship, something they worried about under the Obama administration. And when the president went to Riyadh in, in May of 2017, his first overseas stop as president, uh, they thought they were they had gotten over the possibility the U.S. would walk away. I think the Saudis must be worried tremendously that the U.S. may walk away from them. How they use this crisis, how they navigate, especially if, as you suggested before, this price war creates huge economic dislocation in the United States because of effect on the financial markets because of their loans to, to uh, oil producers. I think we may find ourselves with a dramatically different U.S.-Saudi relationship next winter. And the Saudis, I don't think, have begun to figure out what that relationship would look like. When I've spoken to senior Saudi officials, they are banking on having a United States that still needs Saudi Arabia. And I, my read is that you will have an increasing number of Americans who say we have to cut ties with Saudi Arabia, and there will be not a lot of people in the government arguing against it. Well, and at one point you had said on, for all the Middle East uh, countries that they were using, it was almost portfolio management, right? Because they couldn't rely solely on the United States to be aligned on a number of foreign policy issues, whether it's um, uh, Israel, Iran, Syria, pick your topic of the day, that they were hedging their bets with China, with Russia. This seems now to complicate that matter because China's not in a position to do what it did two years ago. Russia, if this feud um, becomes personal and then national, 
presents a problem. And then, as you said, the United States could be in a very different situation as well. Yeah, but even even if you want Russia and China to play the role of the U.S. will, they won't. Yeah. I mean, they don't have the ability. They don't have, you know, Russia does not have a blue water navy. Um, Russia's way of fighting is they send, you know, f- a few hundred guys from the Wagner group um, as snipers. They don't provide anything like the U.S. provided either after Saddam invaded Kuwait or to deter the Iranians or anything else. In fact, Russia and China are, are relatively close to Iran, certainly compared to the United States. So the idea that, that you get strategic depth from having an external security guarantor, which the Saudis have relied on since the founding of the state, uh, that becomes much more difficult if your external security guarantor has decided for all sorts of reasons that it's not interested in helping you or not interested in helping you in the same way to the same degree. Uh, And I think the Saudis have to be looking at that uh, with a great deal of worry. You've written a lot about the Arab Spring not being over. When you look at young and restive populations, deteriorating economic situations, uh, relationships uh, within the region and outside of the region between countries, is everything getting materially worse? And are we looking at another round of uh, disaffected populations moving in individual countries, or is it very country to country? Well, I'd start with a proposition that countries don't know what caused the Arab Spring, and so they don't know how to prevent another Arab Spring. And so they look at all of this with a great deal of concern. Before the coronavirus crisis hit, you had ongoing protests in Algeria for more than a year. In Lebanon, which, by the way, had its first default on its national debt, Uh, you had protests since the fall in Iraq. You had protests that were put down by the security forces in Iraq and Egypt. You've had scattered protests in Jordan. I mean, this is a region that before any of this happened, had high levels of discontent, a lot of disaffected young people who can't get jobs. Add to that a decline in the economies because of diminished travel and trade. Tourism goes down, whether it's religious, whether it's uh, leisure. You have all the, the, the remittances that people earn, and remittances represent about 10% of the GDP in Egypt and Jordan and Lebanon. And if the oil price crash squeezes the Gulf states, that squeezes the remittances that people can send home to these countries, puts those economies under a further cloud and returns to the labor market, which is already oversupplied with labor, a lot of people who suddenly can't get jobs. So I think the the sort of secondary effects... You have COVID-19 effects, you have oil market effects, and when you combine the two and put them into a place that was already boiling with discontent across the region, still suffering from civil wars started by the Arab Spring in Syria and Yemen um, and Libya, you could have a tremendous amount of dislocation, uh, I would say, by the late spring, early summer which could put the region in a completely different place than it is now. I think there will not be those kinds of demonstrations, mass demonstrations, mass disaffection at a time when people will be going through a period of social distancing. But as people get over that, 
I do worry that they will come together. They'll say the government's totally incompetent. There are fewer jobs. The economies have tanked. Anything is better than this. Even though we haven't seen any good to come from the Arab Spring, we can't continue to live this way. And we'll be in a whole different situation come fall. Well, John, this has been a terrific discussion. I think we've just barely scratched the surface. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, things will become a bit clearer. Um, but for now, uh, hold on and stay tuned. And thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Frank. Thanks to Frank and John for that timely update. And thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. 